Good morning. morning. Invite you to open your Bibles up. We're going to look at two places at the beginning this morning. Um, Find your place in Psalm 60. Psalm 60, that's where we're going to be at today. But I want us to understand as you find your place in Psalm 60, the context we have this, uh, as we have over these last few lament psalms we sort of know roughly what's going on here in this psalm why is david saying what he's saying why is he singing what he's singing why is he lamenting the way he's lamenting and and so let's understand that a little bit i think it would help so um look with me at second samuel and maybe even let's begin back in chapter five i just want you to put in your mind where this is because remember the Psalms are jumping us back and forth. It's, it may go from David running from Saul and then he's in his kingdom, then he's back running, he's young in life again. And, then he's, and so the context sometimes can be a little confusing. And uh, the point is whether you are young or whether you are old, trials, you will not escape trials and you will not escape the need to know how to lament well in this life. And, and so if you notice in chapters Five of Second Samuel, David is anointed king of Israel. And then he has a, a fight ahead of him, which he wins. He brings the ark into Jerusalem eventually. <laughs> and um, look at chapter 7. This is a big chapter in David's life, a big time in David's life. This is where Nathan the prophet gives David the Davidic covenant. The promises that he will have a throne in a kingdom and what ensues in chapters 8 is David's victories if you've got a bible you'll probably even see it there and, and so if we didn't have psalm 60 today you would think this was just sort of a cakewalk for David you know he's out there fighting and win 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 if you've played any kind of sport and and everybody sees that you won they didn't understand all the training and the hard work and the fighting to go what's on to win that that match or that battle that's David, but what we see here, and if you look at chapters 8 at verse 13, it says, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the valley of salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. This is the context of Psalm 60. And so here's, here's what Psalm 60 brings to light. David is away fighting. And while David is away fighting, the Edomites attack God's people at home. And so bad was this attack that we'll see in the Psalms that David feels like his kingdom is tottering. This was a severe attack. You don't see it here in 2 Samuel. You see it in Psalms. So what does David do? He brings his people to a communal lament. After the communal lament, Joab is dispatched to the Edomites, and and then David follows. So the heading now, if you flip now to Psalm 60, says to the choir master, and and don't you just love all these names, "According according to the Shushan Edith, a victim of David for the instruction when he strove with Aram Neraham and with Aram Zobah, when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. So 
There's somewhere between from the time Joab got there and started fighting until David got there, somewhere between 12 and 18,000 people of the Edomites would, would die after this encounter. But what we are seeing is how David felt when this happened. And so this tells us that even in time of blessings, we are not immune to hard times. We can expect them. And sometimes when things go wrong, they can go horribly wrong. And so let's look at this. In Psalm 60, let's stand in honor of God's word as we see now David's lament out of the response to this situation. Oh God, you have rejected us. Broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink and this made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you. That they may flee from it from the bow. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give us salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness with exultation. I will divide up Shechem and portions out of the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout. In triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against our foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, some of us need a word this morning to keep on fighting. That's the context here, God. You've given us this psalm on purpose in our life. We are not safe to quit. We are not safe to hide, God. So help us, renew us, encourage us, give us what we need to not just survive, but to live. We need that. Your people need that. Those who are watching online need that. And so, Lord, we have come to the only place that we know to come as your people to your word, to sit at your feet and to say, God, teach us. Help me pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just getting pretty well through with Thanksgiving. How many of you ate all of Thanksgiving dinner, including all your leftovers? You did? That's most of the rest of us didn't. So what happens after leftovers about three days? You would say, if some of you are good enough to throw them away, most of us who have a few people living in the house just find that they get shoved to the back of the refrigerator. You know what you call food in the back of the refrigerator? Forsaken. It's just forsaken. You know, until, until something starts smelling... And then you got to clean it out. That's the word of the day, forsaken. That's how he feels. 
It means to be left out to spoil, like a rotting carcass in the desert, like three daily leftovers. And yet, Hebrews 13.5, we're going to look at this a couple times. Uh, the author of Hebrews quotes Joshua 1.5 and says, God said he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. You know, so this is the question this morning. Do you ever feel like God has forsaken you? That despite God's word right here and throughout God's scripture that he has broken his promise? And it's like, can we say that out loud? That's hopefully what you've been getting out of the lament psalms. Of course we can, but we need to take it to God. David did. David's in the midst of unprecedented victory. If you flip back to 2 Samuel, you'll see it. Victory, 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 victory. And in the midst of this, his kingdom almost collapses. And he was like, why? There's a couple of questions that, that will come up um, in the times of suffering. Um, what do we do? What did I do? What did we do? Remember, this is communal lament. This is not about simply about you personally. This is about the people of God collectively in this. And so I decided to sort of give us two rhetorical questions as we look through this. Have we sinned against you? And hasn't God already spoken a word to us? And then look at three lessons. The main idea today, when we feel forsaken, we pray honest. In humility, remembering God has already spoken truth over us while we wait for victory. And we will see that waiting is not a passive experience. So God, have we sinned against you? Could say that this way, God, what do we do? Did we do something? This is a natural question. Notice that David seems to understand the answer to that question. Just look at verses 1 to 3 to start with. He says, Oh God, you have rejected us. Notice the us. Broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. For you have made your people seen hard things. You have given us wine to drink. He seems to understand the answer to the question, God, you are angry with us. We don't know the particulars of what that was. Uh, we know this is a communal lament, talking about today for us, the whole church, the whole people of God here was drawn into this. They were being all affected by this situation in the midst of this unstoppable victories. It says his compared it to a natural disaster. Almost if you put these two illustrations like a, like a drunk man in an earthquake. It's like a, the earth is quaking. You have made us to drink. Do you see that in the Bible? That, it, that's, that's clear what that means. When God makes them drink something, that is a picture of judgment. Uh, Jeremiah 13, just listen. There's just, just one of many. Jeremiah 13, verse 12. It says... You shall speak to them his, this word. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every jar shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, Do we not, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? 
Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the king who sits on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And now, verse 14, And I will dash them one against another, fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not pity nor spare or have compassion, that I should not destroy them. That's what it means to drink God's wine. It is the cup, by the way, that Jesus drank in the garden. That was the cup of God's wrath because of our sin. Sin is serious. There is a judgment going on here. David is what is happening. We know this in our life. David is facing trouble on two fronts, invasion abroad and trouble at home. Isn't this when the pressure gets us? Uh, Problems seem to come in pairs and sometimes more than pairs. You're in ministry very long. You know, the seasons of of hospital visits and even deaths comes in waves. They don't come one at a time very often. And they don't come that way in our life. It's just when both life and ministry add up, jobs and health add up. You're having trouble with maybe your health, and then a child comes over and says, Mom, I am fill in the blank. Listen to David's declaration here. You have rejected us. You have been angry. You have made us. You have torn us. You have people. You have given us. David seems in this situation to know the answer to the question, but we're not given here any indication. We have no reason to think it was David particularly or even the people that were attacked by the, by the Edomites, that it was just their sin. We, we don't know what was going on here exactly. But David seems to know that it is God's hand. God has been displeased. That is what is bothering him more than the defeat. It is that he feels like God has forsaken him. This is most likely a Joshua 7 situation. Do you remember Joshua 7? Where they were having all these victories, Joshua was, and all of a sudden they had a defeat. Kind of find out they had Achan in the camp. And one man's sin brought God's judgment on the whole of God's people. Spurgeon offered this sobering comment. To be cast off by God is the worst calamity that can befall a man or a people. But the worst form of it is when a person is not aware of it or is indifferent to it. I thought about that as I was preparing this week. If God cast away many churches, would they even know it? This sent David instantly to prayer. First, not instantly to send Joab, not instantly to say, okay, how many people we have to fight this thing? He sent him to prayer. He, he called the whole people to prayer. There's, this is their hope. Look at verse 4. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. He go, we go back to this text i will never leave you or forsake you well okay if that's a promise and it's true and what's going on here though though it feels like to david that he's been forsaken then exactly what's happening here the answer is this it's discipline discipline and we have a a cock-eyed view of discipline so let's go back to hebrews chapter 12 and let's Understand it biblically. Hebrews 12, look at verse 3. This is a long text, but it's an important text. 
Remember, the context is important. Hebrew believers are being persecuted. They're being persecuted not because they're doing something wrong, but because they're doing something right. Okay? That's the context to understand discipline here. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you do not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have, and you ha- have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there to whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us when we res- and we respected them. Shall we not much more subject the, to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But listen, listen. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. From the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is not always about blatant rebellion. It is about your holistic growth as a person, as a child of God. God is concerned with all of you. We don't have secret places with the Almighty. He sees us all and He's working on it all. And the main, one of the main tools He uses is suffering. That's just the truth of God's Word. It's the truth of your life. And yet Revelation 3.19 to the church says this, To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. In the midst of God's disciplined hand, it oftentimes to David felt like being forsaken. He says, there is a banner. The banner for us is the gospel. You don't grow out of it. You don't get over it. It only gets more important and more precious. And so let us flip over to this good old book called Romans. And let's just remind ourselves of texts that we hopefully know. Romans 3, 9. What is the gospel? It's no gospel without the bad news. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Do we get in? God, because we're Jews, not at all. We have all been charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's the bad news. All people are under sin, including you. That wrath, that cup, you will have to drink it because you deserve it. That's the bad news. But God. And so, look at verse 21, same chapter, Romans 3, 21, says, But now, you thought Ephesians only had but God in it, didn't you? Look at that. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear to it. All of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Verse 22, 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Because of this, it goes on to say, because this, Jesus Watch what was going on until the fullness of time when Jesus came so that he might be the just and the justifier. In Romans 5 then, flip over a page or two, says, Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this, through him we have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand in which we rejoice, and in which we hope of the glory of God. That's the gospel. There is no hope. Turn on, flip over a few more pages to Romans 10. Romans 10. Verse 9. There has to be a response to the gospel. If you confess, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone believes in him will not be put to shame, for is there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the gospel But you must agree with God that you deserve His wrath and not His mercy. And you must agree that Jesus Christ is the only way. This is the banner in which we must look. As the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so was Jesus raised up. But you got to look to Him and you got to put your faith in Him. Romans gives us the word confess. That means to agree, to believe, which is to entrust. Verse 14 and 15 of Romans here we see we are to lift the banner of God that saves. How will they know unless we declare it? This is why we must work through our issues in this life because there's more things going on in this life than just the issues I'm facing today. There's a mission that I need to be a part of. The need is to agree with God, receive His forgiveness and be obedient. For David, the need is for his people to agree that they are sinful, receive forgiveness, and then pick up their sword and fight. That's the context. And listen, that's our context. There is, and I think this grabs it. I think this is what's going on. This subtle slide in the Christian life towards self-reliance, especially in victory. If When we see at the end, I think you'll see it. There's no salvation in man. There's, it's this idea to begin to think there is salvation in me, that I produce the growth, I produce this, I can get this to happen. If I just line it up right, if I go to the right seminars and I read the right books, and he says, no, you're nothing. Without me, we're like leaves in the fall. We tremble and fall. He says, I need you now, verse 5, back to Psalm 60. I need you now. That your beloved ones may be delivered. You can almost put in parentheses, now God, give us salvation by your right hand to answer us. In verse 1, he used the word restore. We need restoration. We need you to return. We need you to turn this situation around. He reminds God here of what something God knows, but 
We do this ourselves. God, these are your beloved. There is an enemy. But we're not your enemy. We're the chosen. David is not seeking salvation merely for himself, but his people. He's reminding, we are your people. And they are our enemies. And our enemies are your enemies. He's teaching us something here. The word salvation... You know what the word salvation means at its root? To accept help. You can't be saved if you think you can do it. The whole purpose of using this word in your spiritual life and in your physical life is to say, I cannot help myself. That's salvation. It's nothing else. This is hard. This is why people walk away at the word repent. This is why most preachers have excised it from the church. Cutting off people from being saved. Because if you don't repent, you cannot be saved. You must agree with God. And you must say, I need help. I must have help. So answer me. That word answer us means give me some kind of proof that you saved me. That you're coming. I feel like this myself. I'm standing on the wall saying, I'm waiting on him. Going to do something out of this. He is. That's what David's looking at. David's people has been attacked. The kingdom's tottering. The first thing he does is pray, repent, turn his people back to God for help. And now we begin to see, as we see every lament psalm, the confidence. And he asked this question, so to speak. Has not God already spoken about this? Look at verse 6. God has already spoken. Verse, God, verse 6, Psalm 60. God has spoken in his holiness with exultation. I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Verse 7. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. And Judah is my scepter. Uh, people interpret this passage two different ways. Either David is referring to the old land promise. And you remember in Joshua where, where not only they got the land, they divided it up by tribes. Or he's grabbing all of it, so to speak, in the Davidic promise that we saw in 2 Samuel 7. David's throne has a kingdom. That kingdom is that land. And David means to have it because God has promised it to him. He's saying, God, you've already spoken on this issue of this land. You've already made a promise. This is the issue of our faith. Our faith always has an object, and the object is always God's word. One commentator said this, The word of God in verses 6 and 8 is made the basis of the faith that is expressed in verse 5. Thus, faith should always seek the foundation of the word of God. Remember, we used... A few weeks back, this idea of the beanbag chair, that word entrust, to be able to, you can't enjoy a beanbag chair if you don't give yourself to it. <laughs> you sit on the edge, it just doesn't quite, it feels very uncomfortable, especially the older you get. You're not good at sitting up on your knees anyway. We've got to lean back into it. So we lean back into faith. You know what faith leans back into? The promises of God. Promises of God lean back into the character of God. That's the way it works. The more we know it, the more we 
trust it. David is declaring things that God already has already spoken into his people's life. We know this, but it's a, it's a good quote for this place. Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not decry mine. And since everything is the Lord, what he gives to us belongs to us. That's what David is saying. And he's given it to us. That brings him, you see, into a confident freedom. Not a self-centered one. I want you to see it because you're sitting there going, yeah, but David, David had a promise there. He had a direct promise. What about us? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. I don't think we can ponder this verse too long. I know I'm not done, I'm not done pondering it myself. But I wanted to give it to you. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation, so it might be a little different than the one you're seeing, but I want you to see it. Remember, context, the Corinthian church, or rather, let us say, jacked up. They got some problems, uh, and one of them is they're arrogant. They're bragging and they're fighting about, you know, hey, I like this leader. He's the best. No, he's not. I was saved under his ministry, and his ministry is a whole lot better than that guy. That's what they're doing. Not, not that we would do that, but they were. And, uh, and so here's his conclusion, verse 21, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. The, con- the, the command here, so don't boast about following a particular human leader. I put in parentheses in my notes, why not? Does he say, because that leader in you, y'all were, y'all were just specks in the, in the sand of God's economy. Y'all, y'all really don't matter. They don't matter. Nobody matters. You just need to do what God tells you. Not what he says. Look at what he says. For everything belongs to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life and death or the present and the future... Everything belongs to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Do you see that leaning back into things? Everything belongs to you. I I dare you to try to understand all of what that means. The banner of the gospel humbles and it restores. It restores us back from a self-reliance to a Godward dependence. Because a Godward dependence is the only place that we can fight from that guarantees victory. God has already spoken the truth about us. We belong to Christ. And Christ owns everything. So what does that make us? Heirs to it all. So if God has spoken a word to us, he's also spoken a word to them. The enemy, verse 8, you see it. Back in Psalm 60. He says, Moab is my wash basin. Edom, I, I cast my shoe. And over Philistia, I shout in triumph. So victory for us, you know, if you're in a, say, a wrestling match, if I win, you lose. Some, not everybody gets participation trophies. Somebody wins, somebody else is going to lose. That's the point here. The victory for them meant defeat for their enemies. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. Moab descendants came from Lot and his daughters. You can read about that story if you want to. I'm not going to explain it. Both of them gave Israel trouble through the years. 
What is your greatest enemy? Well, the Bible says your greatest enemy is death. 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter in the Bible, verse 23, says this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Remember what belongs to us and who we belong to? Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all the enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. God's enemies are our enemies and our enemies are God's enemies. Have you made friends with something that's an enemy of God? You can't expect victory if we're teetering around with things that dishonor God. And will destroy you. They're enemies. They should be seen as enemies in our life. Not tolerated friends. Satan has his plans. But he has no authority to claim victory in our life. You see it? It's God's word speaking. In Jesus' name, it's been been given to us. Repentance brings confidence. And confidence brings freedom. And freedom a sword with which to fight. So... Verse 9, we will act in faith. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? The answer is, God, Joab, he's a bad dude. He was a bad dude. You wouldn't want to meet Joab and be on the wrong end with him. That was not his hope. The whole point is having turned to God, they are ready for war. Having turned to God now, he sends Joab. Now let's go fight. So I want to spend some time today in our so what, drawing some lessons. Lessons I hope that would move us from anxiety to victory. Or maybe confusion to more of an expectation. There again, we start with a little bit of a bad news wrapped in good news. Without the Lord Jesus, there is no victory. Uh, Look at verse 11. 11 and 12 is really our application today. Oh, grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. Quite in my study, a a picture of what might have been in David's mind here was Petra. You familiar with Petra? Petra was a stronghold at that time of Edom, and it, it, was, it had cliffs that rose thousands of feet. And, and one writer said it was so narrow down there at the base where you go in at the pass that two horses couldn't ride together through it. So in order to get to the Edomites, that you had to go through this pass and that only a handful of men was needed to kill everybody up in a big old pile trying to get through the pass. It was insurmountable. This, this image, this picture, so to speak, David says, without you, God, there is no victory. This is, by the way, what your life-dominating sin in your life feels like to you sometimes, doesn't it? It's, I can't get through there. I can't get there from here. It doesn't matter whether it's pornography or, or depression or whatever it might be, or the fear of man, the fear of the future. It can seem like it dominates your whole reality. It consumes our mind. It 
it plans our future for us. Turn with me to Luke 18. Luke 18, uh, the Lord had a conversation with a rich man. You remember it? Luke 18, look at verse 24. Remember, you end up telling the rich man, um, you want to be... You want to be saved? Then, okay. Give up everything you own. Follow me. Didn't tell him to pray a prayer or sign a card, did he? Just told him to give up everything. By the way, that's what it means to follow Christ. He walks away. We pick up the story in verse 24. It says, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It is impossible, by the way, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Don't try to explain that away. He means exactly what he says there. They understood that as a response as those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The greatest first step toward victory is the step that the rich man wouldn't take, which is repentance. Repentance means you're right, I'm giving it up, and I'm going to walk this way. He wouldn't do it. And if we won't do it, we're not agreeing this is wrong. This way of thinking does not honor Christ. This way of feeling, though I felt and though it's real, it's the lie that I am believing today. And I have to rebuke it in Jesus' name. It's not being true, not faithfully and accurate of my Lord. I must agree. I must ask for his forgiveness. And then I need to amputate it by putting it off. And I need to keep amputating it and putting it off. And I need to keep putting on things that drive it out of our lives till it's gone. That's how you get rid of life-dominating sin. This could be your Petra and it's mine. And we are, none of us are immune to it. Got mine right now that I'm fighting. Okay? And you got yours. This truth is for all of us today. Here's the truth. Once your life-dominating sin is brought to light, it begins to lose control over your life. Once you pull in trusted brothers and sisters alongside of you that can say, I'm struggling right here with this, and I'm sick of it, it begins to lose its hold. Isolation is not the answer. God saved you to Christ and he saved you into community and to abandon that community is to sin against God and we must repent and return to the church hiding is not living hiding is not living and those who hide may survive but they will never live in the victory that Jesus died to give them an authentic biblical community is one of your greatest weapons in the life dominating sin in your life If only the rich man would have left it and followed Jesus. But he would not. Victories in this life are important. Victories in this life are important. Why? Because our testimony is important. It wasn't about the land, brothers and sisters, in the Old Testament. It was about the mission of God. That the nations be glad. 
That was the point of Israel, and that's your point. Without the Lord Jesus, there can be no victory. And as we just got through singing, though our sins is greater, great, Christ is greater. Christ is greater than anything that dominates your life today. Romans 5, 6 reminds us this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Verse 8. But God shows, God proved his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, declared righteous by his blood, much more than shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we are also rejoiced in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. He's greater than our sin. He died for you, proved how much he loved you by dying for you. He cannot do anything else but give his perfect, righteous, holy son for you. He did it to declare you right before God, to even give you the faith to believe. Jesus removed everything that can stand between you and God by giving you his son. And he proved it's all true by the resurrection. And so the life we have, Nobody can take it away. It belongs to me. Eternal life belongs to me. You get it? It belongs to me. Can nobody take it away? Can't death take it away? It belongs to me. It's been given to me. Not when I die. It's been given to me the moment I have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we fight from. We must fight. That's the point of the psalm here. Verse 12. With God. That's in contrast, I feel forsaken. I am not forsaken. With God we shall do valiantly. I don't feel very brave today, but God we shall do valiantly. We shall tread down our foes. That's what it says. That's the way it ends. Every word in this psalm is contrasted against the word forsaken. I am not forsaken. I will be saved. I'm not forsaken. I will be delivered. I'm not forsaken. He will restore me. I'm not forsaken. I'm going to fight because my God's going to show up in my life. There's a banner. Me and Micah was talking about this this week, that, that movie Glory, that black regiment that not only fought for our country but fought against racism. And they, had that, they had that flag on that last end where they're all going to get killed, but they wouldn't let the flag drop. They kept picking the flag up. One go down, the other pick it up. One go down, the other pick it up. Brothers and sisters, that's our life. That's your life. That's your life. We're passing the flag on. Don't drop the flag. The flag's worth everything. Well, you've been given the promises. It's time to fight. If we go down, you need to pick it up. We've got one life. And so do you. How are you going to use it? We've been told that suffering is a part of this. Why is it such a shock to us when we suffer? Paul told Timothy, which means he was suffering in 2 Timothy 2, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one enlisted him. Verse 8 says, Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as he preached in my gospel, for which, listen, 
Can't you just see Paul writing this with chains on his arms? He's in handcuffs in prison when he writes this. He said, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's the aim of our life. It's the aim of David's life. That's the aim of Israel's life. Whether in victory or defeat, the banner must stay raised. God promises that he'll do the saving. The reason that you must deal with your sin and fight for victory today is the glory of God and the advancement of your one great mission doesn't end at an age you can't do this mission in glory we only can do it now so let's get about it we are saved by grace alone through Christ alone to be about our father's business and so let's join him in the fight let's pray and so Lord I have been strengthened in my own life as a priest today. And I thank you for your word. Your word is always good. (laughs) It's not always what I want to hear. It's always what I need to hear. It's always good. So we thank you, Lord. That different people in different places of their life, whether in person or online or hearing this, and we all got our varied situations and that we're dealing with. Some are really wonderful and some are terrible. And Lord, we have brought all of that here. And, and your word has dealt with it all. And so Lord, are you calling us as a church to repentance? That we really do think we can renovate spaces or... Grow your church on our own? If it is, Lord, may we agree with you that that is sin. May we turn once again to the, not only the God that saves, but the God who said, I will build my church and I have chosen to use you. What a humbling, amazing promise that you don't need us but you've chosen to use us and that you set your love and affection on us and no one can take that away and so God if there's someone here today that needs to turn to Christ I pray that they just will the most important thing they can do as we sing is to repent right where they sit or stand Stand and put their faith in you. Give them the courage to come up to me later and talk to me and let us know what discipleship looks like. And so, Lord, I, I pray for your spirit to do your work here. Uh, you would encourage us for the fight that is our next week, uh, for the fight that is just a few minutes from now. But now, Lord, we've come to the tables. The tables are open, God. Because we dare not leave this place without remembering the person and work of your son that is done. It is finished. 
And we have won, and it is ours. And we will celebrate for your coming. And one day we will rest. But now, Lord, it's time to fight. But thank you for a day of rest that we can stop and orient ourselves towards the things of God. So you be honored, Lord, as we give and as we celebrate communion with you in Jesus' name.